All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us here at the Medina East Campus. And uh, let me just say that if you're newer to Grace or if you haven't been here in a while and you're just kind of getting uh, reconnected, I want to say thanks so much for joining us. And uh, you actually are catching us right now kind of in the midst of a series we've been in that's been called Review. And uh, really kind of what we've been saying in the series is we've been saying that, you know, uh, I think all of us know that we live in a time uh, where we are in a review society, right? And so Man, we review everything. We review products, we review mo- mo- uh, movies and music and restaurants and all kinds of stuff. And what we've been saying is that while there's there's actually a lot of advantage to that, right? There's a plus side to that. We've been, we've been saying that for many of us, uh, what we'll do sometimes is we'll take that kind of review mentality that we're accustomed to and we will import that into our interaction with the church. And so we've been saying that, you know, for better or worse, I think all of us do this, right? We just kind of come into the church with our own kind of set of desires and opinions and expectations of what we want the church to look like or what we think the church should or should not be. And uh, and so in this series, what we're, we're actually doing is we're asking maybe a more important question. And the question that we're asking is, you know, what, what is Jesus's desire for his church? What are, what are his expectations, his opinions, kind of his vision of what he wants his church to be? And, uh, and so that's kind of what we're looking at in this series. We're kind of asking the question, for those of us who follow Jesus, and of course, uh, I know by the way that not everyone who's connecting right now is maybe a follower of Christ. And so if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, you know, we always say this, but we just count it an absolute honor that you would let us be part of that investigation. But we're saying for those of us who follow Jesus, how do we pursue his vision of what he wants us to be together? So that's what we're kind of going for. And uh, what we're doing in the series, we're actually looking at the one place in the Bible. It's actually pretty cool where we actually see Jesus Christ himself giving his review of the church. And uh, the place that we've been looking at is actually in the book of Revelation. And so I want to encourage you, if you would, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up. And as we continue in this series, and we're going to find ourselves today in Revelation chapter 3. All right, so if you want to open your Bible or get on your Bible app and uh, get to Revelation chapter 3, I think that'd be awesome. And uh, again, what we, what we see in this passage is we actually see Jesus addressing seven ancient churches. It's actually a passage that is sometimes referred to as the seven letters to the seven churches. And so what we've been doing is we've just kind of been working through each and every single one of those. And so up to this point, we've actually looked at four of these letters to these churches. And today we're going to come to the fifth letter to the fifth church. And uh, this is in a place called Sardis. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about Sardis. So uh, just as a way to maybe introduce you to this church before we, we read what the, the Bible says, uh, I think to understand what Jesus has to say, I thought maybe I'd start by asking you kind of a question. So this is a question really for those who grew up here in Northeast Ohio. This will make more sense to you, but but here's a question I have for you. Uh, what do these three things have in common? All right, so don't you think about it. Uh, Rolling Acres, uh, the mall in Akron, Geauga Lake Family Amusement Park, and blockbuster video. All right, what do these three things have in common? Now, if you're not from around here, that might not all make that much sense to you. Uh, but if you're from around here and you're in a certain age category, uh, my guess is that you know what I'm talking about when I put these three things up. That yeah, they have a few things in common, but here's the one thing that they're all notorious for. These are all places that at one time were bustling with life, they were bustling with activity, but now they are totally and utterly dead. That's what they are, right? These are places that are famously known for at one time having a great reputation, right? For at one time seeming unstoppable, like the, the, the height of their game. 
Uh, but now they're most known for kind of their slow decline and their eventual death. You know, think about Geauga Lake. I don't know if maybe some of you kind of remember that around here. Geauga Lake was an amusement park. And at one point, man, it was the place to be. There was Geauga Lake. There was SeaWorld. I remember as a kid, this might date me a little bit. I remember going there and man, just it was like the place to be. Uh, but eventually, over time, it uh, ended up becoming kind of a deserted wasteland. And, uh, and you know, it was just kind of a place that became dilapidated and uh, kind of unkept for a while. Or, you know, you think about uh, Rolling Acres Mall, if you guys are familiar with that. Rolling Acres, at one point in time, long time ago, man, it used to be bustling with all kinds of shopping. And, you know, it was hard to find a parking spot. And uh, over time, it kind of became sort of like this eerie wasteland, you know, and and kind of this uh, broken down building. Eventually, they, they tore the whole thing down. Think about Blockbuster Video, which, by the way, Blockbuster, I actually, believe it or not, used to work at Blockbuster. And so for two years in high school, that was the, the place where I was employed. But man, I remember that this place seemed like an, uns- an unassailable entertainment company. I actually remember working at Blockbuster. People would wait hours in line to get their new release on a Friday or Saturday. And so this place was, was crazy. And now, of course, you know, it's become a memory. And uh, uh, interestingly, some of you maybe know this already, but did you hear about this? There actually is only one blockbuster that still remains in the entire world, and it happens to be in our country. It's in Oregon. There's actually a picture of that one blockbuster that's there. And of course, it's privately owned, and really, it's nothing more than a museum to what blockbuster used to be. And so why, why am I bringing all that up? Okay, well, the reason I tell you that is because, you know, I think if you can, if you can get your mind around that, in many ways, what we're going to see is that Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis is Jesus actually looking at this church, and basically he's going to say, listen, spiritually, you guys are kind of like the blockbuster of churches. You're kind of like the rolling acres. You're like the Geauga Lake of churches. In fact, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we just read the entire letter that Jesus writes to this church, and let me show you the spiritual condition that Jesus identifies at this church. So check it out. We'll actually start off here in verse 1. It says this, Jesus writes, he says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and what you've heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and before his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there you have it. That's Jesus's letter to this church in Sardis. And, you know, if you were kind of uh, listening to that, uh, my guess is that maybe for some of you, you may have noticed something unique about this letter. And that is that in this letter that Jesus writes, it actually contains no commendation whatsoever. And, and so in other words, Jesus has pretty much nothing good to say about this church. And this is actually really fascinating because, you know, most of the church, if you've been with us in the series, Most of the churches, Jesus offers praise and criticism, right? He says, here's some good stuff about you, and here's some stuff that I have against you. 
Uh, in one case, in the case of Smyrna, uh, you might remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this, uh, Jesus offers only praise and no criticism, no critique. But here in Sardis, Jesus offers just critique, just criticism. So this is a short and direct letter that Jesus kind of offers to this church. So let's dig at it a little bit, and let's see if we can kind of make sense of what Jesus is saying. So I want you to notice at the beginning, let's go back to verse 1. Uh, he actually starts off and he says to the angel of the church in Sardis. So let's just talk a little bit about the background of this place, Sardis, the city of Sardis where this church uh, would have been. So we know a little bit about Sardis. Uh, if you were to look at a map, this is kind of ancient Turkey. Or, I'm sorry, modern day Turkey. And uh, these are where those seven churches would have been. So Sardis is kind of in the middle. Sardis was actually a relatively big city. Uh, its population was estimated to be somewhere between maybe 60 to 100,000 people is what they speculate. And it also was a, uh, a relatively important city. And so uh, this entire kind of empire, this kingdom, it's called the Lydian kingdom, this whole area, this would have been the capital city of that, of that entire kingdom. So it's kind of an important city. And one thing I want you to understand about this city that makes it really unique, one of the unique characteristics is actually something that you see uh, in its geography. Uh, this city is actually built in such a way that there's a lower part and then there's an upper part to, to the whole thing. In fact, I'll just kind of show you. This is a picture of uh, what ancient, where uh, ancient Sardis would have been. And the, the upper part would have kind of been a surrounding grouping of hills and mountains. And then there's the lower part of the city. This is where all of the streets and the buildings would have been. And so the upper part was 1,500 feet higher than the lower part of uh, kind of where the, the, the main activity of the city would have happened. And so what I, what I want you to see is that in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, this city was kind of naturally and strongly fortified. In fact, uh, we're actually told that all around this city, there would have been walls that would have been built kind of on top of those hills. And, uh, and those basically would have been a strong, strong fortress. And so basically, this city was considered an impenetrable. It was a group of people who felt very, very, very secure and very, very safe. In fact, there, uh, there actually was a Greek saying back in this time. And so when someone would say, they would say this, they would say that uh, they were going to capture the Acropolis of Sardis. Uh, that actually was a proverbial way of saying to do something that was impossible. So this was a city that, man, they, they thought they were safe. They thought they were secure. And they had kind of this, this impenetrable fortress that would have surrounded them. In addition to that, another thing we know about this place is that it actually was very, very wealthy. At one time, this city would have probably been the wealthiest of all of the cities around it. They actually had a river uh, that was in the midst of the city that was very rich in gold. And so it actually caused kind of like a gold rush. And so people would come from all over and they would get wealthy. So this was a secure city. This was a wealthy city. And so Jesus continues and he writes to this church that sits in this city. And notice what he says. Here's what he says. It's to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? <clears throat> These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God in the seven stars. Now, some of you might be thinking, what, what is that talking about? Seven spirits of God and seven stars. And um, actually, uh, I actually want to come back to this in, in just a minute. I think what Jesus says about himself, how he identifies himself to this church, is actually deeply significant. So we'll come back to that here in a minute. But notice what he says. Here's his critique. He goes right into it. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, but you're dead. And so, so here's what Jesus basically says. He says, listen, the best thing I can say about you is this. Some people think you're awesome, 
but you actually aren't. You're actually dead. You actually stink, is basically what Jesus says to this group of people. And so basically what Jesus says, he says, man, the problem, the problem with this church is that they, they had a false reputation. This was a church that had a good reputation with those around them in the community, with probably the other churches that were around them. But apparently this church uh, was dead in Jesus' evaluation, his assessment. Now we know this was actually a church that was very active. Uh, it was a growing church. Uh, we understand that of all of the seven churches, the church in Sardis was probably the largest congregation of them all. It certainly was the wealthiest congregation of them all. And uh, it was a church that was bustling with activity. They had all kinds of events. They, they probably had all kinds of religious activities that were taking place. They actually had a history and a reputation of being a church that was vibrant and that was healthy. And they would have had a great reputation with other people around them. And yet Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, even though you have this great reputation of being alive, he says, you're actually dead. Jesus says, you guys look alive, but inwardly you're lifeless. Inwardly, you have lost the life that once was within you. So, man, what does that mean? What does that mean for a church? What does that mean for a Christian? Well, I think, I think what, what this is pointing to is actually a very easy and a very common condition that I believe any and every church and, every, and any and every Christian naturally drifts towards. And that's this idea of spiritual deadness. It is outward activity without an inward vitality. I think, I think what Jesus is talking about, this is a, I think we understand this. This is a going through the motions. And this is a doing all of the right things, but doing them in a cold and lifeless way. This is uh, going through and doing all of the what's of church and all of the what's of religion, but yet totally forgetting and, mis and misplacing the whys of why you do that in the first place. And so Jesus looks at this and he calls this condition, at least here, he calls it deadness. He says, you're spiritually dead. And I also want you to notice with me in this passage that Jesus actually uses another metaphor to diagnose this spiritual condition. He explains it another way. You actually see it in the next verse. Look what he says. He says this, wake up, wake up. So, so I want you to notice Jesus actually shifts metaphors. So he goes from calling them dead to now referring to their condition as asleep. Now, I think what we see here is that Sardis had drifted into something that we could call spiritual slumber. And I actually want to take a minute and I, I want to talk about that a little bit together, this idea of spiritual slumber, because I, I, I believe that this is actually something that is very common. In fact, I'd submit to you that I think that, uh, that for all Christians and all churches, that there is a natural tendency and there's a natural drift to go towards spiritual slumber. In fact, I might even take it a step further. I might say this. I think that the only churches who are not asleep are the churches who are very concerned about not falling asleep. As I, as I see it, I think that, that when, as it relates to Christianity, that Christians are always in one of three categories, that we are either, one, falling asleep, two, asleep, or three, just waking up. And I think that we see in spirituality, there is a continual fight against spiritual slumber. So, so what are some characteristics of spiritual slumber? Well, I think in this passage, we actually see a few of them. And so first off, I'll just give you the, one of them. I think one is this, is that spiritual slumber, I think in order for that to happen, it requires that a person is comfortable. You know, if you think about it, to fall asleep, you have to be comfortable, 
right? And we all know this. I, I can easily prove my point to you, right? Have you ever slept on a futon? <laughs> if you have, you, you know that sleeping on a futon is proof that it's hard to sleep when you're uncomfortable. You got to be comfortable to, to fall asleep. And I think one of the things we see with this church, it's interesting when you look at them, is you see that this church was a church that appeared to be very comfortable. They're secure. They felt safe. They were rich. And I don't know if you also noticed, but in this passage, do you notice that not only does Jesus offer no commendations to this church, there's also no report from Jesus about false teaching, about persecution. He doesn't mention anything about Jezebel or Satan. And we actually saw that with the other churches, that he actually mentions these threatening things. But in this church, you see that there's actually, it seems to be, no threat. So what's that telling us? Well, I think what, what that tells us is that the problem with this church was this church. They were their own worst enemy. I actually really like the way one author puts it as he's writing about this church in Sardis. Here's what he says. He says, the church of Sardis was not alive enough to have enemies or confront heresy. It had simply become the model of non-offensive Christian faith. You see, I think that's, I think that's true, right? There's, there's no persecution or heresy because there's only mediocrity. I, th I think what we see here is that, is that this was a church that was experiencing no resistance because there was actually no spiritual movement that was taking place. It's like, uh, my guess is you've probably heard the famous quote, only dead fish go with the flow. Now, at some point, resistance is actually a sign of life. And I think what happens is when we become too comfortable, uh, we're at risk of drifting off into spiritual slumber. And Jesus is going to show us this is actually a very vulnerable and it's a very dangerous place to be spiritually. And I guess why Jesus looks and he says, listen, you guys need to wake up. You need to wake up. And actually, I think it's pretty interesting. The word that's used here, wake up, literally means stay watchful or be vigilant. That's what it literally means. And the reason I think that's important is because when Jesus tells this church to wake up, that actually would have meant something significant to those who were in Sardis. Uh, in fact, I want you to notice if you've got your Bible, glance down with me at verse three, Jesus says something similar. Look at what he says. He says, but if you do not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now that might seem like a weird thing for Jesus to say, right? Jesus says, uh, you know, if you stay asleep, I'm going to come like a thief when you're sleeping. That seems bizarre to us, but here's what I want you to get that when Jesus says that, that would have actually been something that would have carried a lot of specific meaning for those in Sardis. It actually was a historical reference to something that these guys would have known. So what was that? Well, we actually know that as fortified and as protected as this city was, remember how I talked about how this city was just like, they just had it on lockdown? We know that two times in their history, at least two times, this city fell and this city was sacked because of a lack of, of, of vigilance, because they, they failed, they let their guard down and they failed to look out and to watch out. Like I, like I mentioned, this city thought themselves to be invincible. And what's so interesting is that in the times that this city was sacked, it was never taken by direct military assault. The two times that this city was sacked, it was because of a lack of vigilance. This happened once in 547 BC. It happened again in 214 BC. And in both cases, it was attacked when the city slept. There was no one looking out. There was no one watching. 
The, the armies found a chink in the armor and slowly they came. And so when Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief when you sleep, that would have had pretty significant historical meaning to this group of people in Sardis. And so I think what Jesus is showing us is this. I think he's saying that, listen, the history of Sardis teaches us a very incredible and true spiritual truth. And that's this, that we are never more in danger of falling asleep than when we feel comfortable and when we feel at ease. We feel like everything is going fine and there's nothing that is up against us or threatening us. I think that's what Jesus is revealing. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. When I was uh, reading this passage and I was studying this part, it actually reminded me of an account that I read recently about a Christian leader and about his wife who were leading a church that was rapidly growing uh, in the Middle East where they were seeing, I mean, just so many Muslims turning to faith in Jesus Christ. And I was reading this account, and uh, in this church that he planted, that he and his wife planted, happened to be in an incredibly dangerous part of the world. It was a part of the world where um, telling people about Jesus uh, was, uh, was illegal. And if you got caught, it would get you thrown in prison. And in some cases, it would even get you executed. In fact, this, this particular church planner talked about how he and his wife, whenever he would leave for work in the morning, they would often pray together before he left because they were very aware of the very real possibility that they would never see each other again if something would happen. So very, very dangerous environment to stand for Jesus and, uh, and to, work, uh, to, be, to be working in ministry. And he actually said something in this account that I was reading that was actually very disturbing. And he said this, he said that he and his wife had an opportunity to move to the United States. So because persecution was so heavy, they had an opportunity to come to the States, and so they did. And he said that, that it wasn't very long, only a few months after that they came to the States, that his wife began to plead with him to move back to the Islamic country. And so why? Why would she want to go back to such a dangerous situation? And this is what she told him, and I'll quote. She said this, she said, it's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here. And the Christians are asleep. And I feel like I'm falling asleep. And I read that and I thought, oh my goodness. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that really what this does is it kind of illustrates the point that it's, it's easy to fall asleep when we're comfortable. It's easy to fall asleep and, and get lulled to sleep uh, when we feel secure, when we feel safe, when we feel like there's nothing that's threatening to us. And so I think that one of the big characteristics of spiritual slumber is that, that it starts by being comfortable. Here, here's another, another characteristic about spiritual slumber. I think in spiritual slumber, one of the characteristics is that our eyes are closed. You know, of course, when you're asleep, and we all know this, you can't discern reality, right? When you're asleep, your eyes are closed. You're blinded to what's real around you, right? You're dreaming, and so you're shut off to reality. And I think when slumbering, we find that, right? We're unconscious to reality. And I would actually say, I think, you know, the same thing happens spiritually, uh, we become unconscious to reality. We become unconscious to the power and to the presence of God. Um, you know, I think uh, it's interesting. There's a phrase that we use here around grace. You maybe have heard us use this before, uh, but it's the, it's the phrase uh, practical atheism, practical atheism. And this is actually a phrase that kind of articulates something that Christians can easily fall into. I think for many of us who follow Jesus, uh, we, can, we, can, we can find ourselves here where we claim to have faith in Jesus, and yet a lot of our life is practically and functionally kind of no different than that of an atheist, as someone who doesn't believe that there's a God. Right? We, can, we can live with, with little or no awareness or acknowledgement 
of God in our day-to-day life. We can make plans, we can spend money, we can make goals, we can even go to church, we can even do religious stuff, all without giving much consideration to God's presence and to the heart of God and those things. And, you know, I think, I think in some ways uh, that in part, this is what it means to sleep spiritually. I think to, to be in spiritual slumber means that Jesus is no more real to you than other things in your life. Or maybe I put another way, I think spiritual slumber is that Jesus is in many ways less real to you than the other things that are happening in your life. So let me see if I can just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. So I, I want you to think about uh, worry with me for just a moment. So uh, if you're a person who finds yourself worrying, like I think all of us do, there's a lot of reasons that that happens. You know? But I think that if you really dig down to it and you get down to kind of the root of the issue, for a lot of us, what happens when we're worried is that the wisdom of Jesus has become less real to us than our own wisdom. Right? That, that we look at a situation, we look at what's happening around us, and we assume that God doesn't know what he's doing or that Jesus is not in control and that we need to take control because we know what needs to happen. You see, I think, I think a lot of times, quite honestly, when Jesus' wisdom becomes more real than our own, what happens is our worries begin to evaporate. Or how about this? I'll give you another example. Uh, maybe for some of us, maybe there's some of you who are, are here now, and you find yourself in a place where you continually feel unworthy or you feel guilty because of past sins and mistakes that you've made. Maybe that's you. You, you. you have this guilt that you carry. You constantly feel like God could never truly forgive you. You always feel like you're second rate. You're beating yourself up continually. And you know, for you, maybe one of the reasons that that's happening is because maybe for you, your sins have become more real to you than the forgiveness that Jesus offers because of his death and resurrection. You know, maybe for you, even you've even heard people say, people say to you, man, God loves you, and Jesus died for you, and you're forgiven. And you say, yeah, 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 I know, I've heard that before. Why, why, why is it that sometimes that doesn't seem so real to us? I think part of that might be spiritual slumber. See, when we're spiritually asleep, other things become more real to us than the eternal realities of Jesus Christ. Politics become bigger and become more real and speak more loudly than the sovereignty and the promises of God. I think when we find ourselves in a place of spiritual slumber, sickness and death are more real to us and have more finality to us than the hope of the resurrection. I think we find ourselves in a place of spiritual slumber. This pandemic is more real to us than the power and the presence of God in our lives. And I think that part of what happens is when we find ourselves in a place of spiritual slumber is that our eyes are closed off to reality. We are asleep to the realities of God. And you know, can I, can I just say, uh, by the way, that I think this might be a good spot for me to mention, uh, one of the reasons why it's so important that we gather together as a church, that we prioritize gathering, you know, whether it's on the weekend or the online weekend experience or whether it's in our life groups or however that looks, I think one of the reasons that's so important is because part of what we're doing when we gather is we are rousing each other back into awareness of God's presence. We are constantly waking each other up. And the reason that we're doing that is because we're constantly falling asleep. And so it's like several times a week we need to be reminded, hey, God is real. Hey, God is in control. Hey, you're forgiven. And so we have to come back to those things. So comfortable, eyes closed. Here's the third thing, one of the third characteristics. Uh, in spiritual slumber, I think one of the things that happens is we become unaware. You know, um, 
Did you ever notice this? When you're asleep, you don't really know you're asleep until you wake up. You really don't know that. Until you wake up or until something wakes you up or until someone wakes you up, only then do you know that you are asleep. And you know, sometimes, I think we all know this, it takes someone else to jar you to wake you up. And as all of us know, if you want to wake someone up who's deeply sleeping, like is dead asleep, like if you want to wake up a teenager at six o'clock in the morning, I think we all know this, you don't whisper to that person, right? You use loud, jarring words. You shout, you shake them if you need to. Use cold water if you got to do that, depending on how urgent the situation is. You know, I, I just think that Jesus's words that we see in this passage, I think his words are like that. They're piercing. They're actually jarring. They're actually pretty alarming. And I believe that this is because Jesus is trying to wake up this church. This is his wake-up call to the church in Sardis. In fact, you know, I just think uh, maybe in keeping with the spirit of this passage, maybe, maybe I can just take a moment and ask you a few piercing questions if you're a follower of Jesus. And so let me just ask you to think about this yourself. Are you asleep? So here's a few things to ask. First off, do you find yourself if you're a follower of Jesus, coasting on the fumes from a previous encounter that you've had with God? I think this is an important question. You know, are, do you find that the stories of God's power in your life, that the stories of God's provision, that the stories of God using you in tangible ways, that the story of stories of God teaching you new things, that those are old stories, maybe months old, maybe even years old? And you know, I think that that might be that might be an indication. Uh, that maybe you're drifting into some type of spiritual slumber. I, mean, I think that spiritual death and spiritual slumber happens a lot of times when our affections for the past become greater than our excitement and vision for the future. Here's a second question to ask yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you find it's been a long time since you've stepped out of your comfort zone for God? I mean, it's a good question. Has it been a while since you've roused yourself into an uncomfortable place in order that you might grow spiritually? Do do you feel like maybe you're just kind of going through the motions and there's not a lot that's shifted, not a lot that's changed? Maybe it's possible that uh, that you're finding yourself in a place of spiritual slumber. How about this question? Have you discovered a growing sense of indifference towards the needs of others in our community and our world? Have you noticed that? Do you you have a, a desire to just tune it all out? Like, I just don't want to, I just don't care. I don't want to know about it. I'd rather just not mess with it. And let me just say, you know, I think, I think if we find ourselves in a place where we don't see needs within our community, it's possible that maybe the reason is because we've isolated ourselves in our own comfort and we've, we've closed our eyes to the reality that exists within our community and in our world. How about this one? Number four, do you sense that you are more or that you're less connected to God's people and to God's mission? Would you say that you feel like you're growing in your connectivity to God's people and to the mission of him? Or do you feel like that's something that's decreasing? I mean, it's possible. Maybe you've gotten sidetracked. Maybe you've gotten sidetracked by your career or there's something else that's been competing for your attention. Or maybe for you, maybe you've been lulled to sleep by the entertainment that we see all around us too. How about this one? When was the last time you shared the hope of Jesus with another person? Now, for those of us who follow Christ, this is a very important question. Do, do you find that maybe you've lost a sense of urgency that, that's around the spiritual reality of eternity? 
right? Is there, is there an urgency in there? Does, does your heart break over the eternal reality that people are going to face without the hope of Jesus Christ? Do, do, do we pray? Do we groan? Do we weep for the people in our life who are far from God? You know, I just got to tell you on this one personally, as I've been reading this passage and I've been studying it, I have been personally very challenged, very challenged. And, you know, one of the things that I've been praying about as I've been reading this passage and I've been identifying ways that I have been falling asleep spiritually, one of the things I've been praying for is I've been praying that God in me, that he would rekindle a white, hot passion for sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with other people. Because here's the thing. If what Jesus said is true, if what he said is true about himself and about eternity and reality, then listen, eternity is real. And he is our only hope. And I'm praying right now that that reality would become more real to me than anything else. And I got to tell you, that's been something that God has really been stirring in my heart through this whole thing. I actually found this really powerful quote uh, from, from, actually from Charles Spurgeon. And here's what he said. He said, if sinners be damned, at least, let the, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let, let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. I got to tell you, I read that. That's been messing me up quite a bit. When I read that, I think, man, I want that fire and that passion to be roused awake to the reality of eternity. Now, of course, these questions I'm asking, I know they're, they're, they're a little blunt and they're kind of jarring questions. Um, but I hope you understand that my intention in asking these questions is not to evoke a guilt trip. These questions are intended to hopefully be a wake-up call for some of us. And let me say, by the way, let me just point out to you that um, the wake-up call is actually an incredible gift from God. Whenever God issues a wake-up call, it is always an act of grace. I just want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus would have never written this letter to this church if their condition was final. The reason Jesus writes this letter to this church is because he cares for them. He loves them. And he says, I want this for you. And so he says, I want you to wake up. And he issues a wake-up call to the sleepy church. So the question is, how do we do that then? If we've identified an inclination towards spiritual slumber. Maybe you're falling asleep. Maybe you are asleep. How, how do we wake ourselves up? How do we do this? Well, here's what he says in verse two. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, I'll be honest, I think what Jesus says here is really, really helpful. In other words, what, what I believe Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, listen, here's where it starts. Work with what you got. Work with what you got. Start small. Start one consistent step at a time and begin to build on that. You know, I, I found uh, that for many of us, and myself included, um, that a lot of us are addicted to intensity. We like to go hard after things. But I think what I've learned, and maybe what you have too, is that transformation doesn't come from intensity as much as it comes from consistency. It's just doing the small things, but doing them consistently over time. And, uh, and so I think that's important. It actually reminds me of... Um, about a year ago, I was teaching my boys how to build a fire. And so I took them in the backyard and I, I was going to teach them how to build a fire from scratch or how to revive a dying fire. 
and I wanted to teach him that skill. And so I had with me, I had some kindling and I had some twigs and I had some sticks and I had some logs, right? I had everything I needed. And I remember my boys, they took the whole heap of that stuff and they just put it together and they said, dad, let's light it on fire. And I said, nah, guys, that's not how it works. Okay. It's not about intensity. It's like, it's about consistency. And so I said, I put it all to the side. I said, here's how it works. And so I grabbed a piece of kindling, actually a piece of birch bark, and I lit it on fire. And then I started to slowly add more kindling. And then we graduated to twigs. And then slowly we started to put on some sticks and then eventually put on the logs. And before we knew it, we had this roaring fire that was going. Listen, how do you reignite a spiritual life that's grown cold? Here's what you do. You strengthen what remains and is about to die. You add to the fire one small thing at a time, consistency over time. Let me give you some practical steps. Some of you might be thinking, well, what could I do? Well, here's some, here's some, some suggestions for you. Like if you're thinking about reigniting a spiritual fire, maybe start here. Incorporate one new spiritual discipline in your life. Now, by spiritual discipline, by the way, I, I actually don't like that term. It sounds so duty-oriented, but spiritual disciplines just refers to habits and patterns in your life that are consistent, that are in your calendar and are consistent, but they lead to spiritual growth and development. In fact, we actually did uh, an entire series that I would point you to. It's called Patterns That Change Us. And in that series, we talk about all of these different disciplines, these spiritual patterns, things like solitude and community, things that we talk about things like prayer and fasting. We talk about things uh, like, um, like being connected to, uh, to God's people. We talk about things like confession. All of those things are very important patterns. So I might recommend uh, pick one of those and begin to implement that in your life. Here's the second one. I would say this. Maybe consider taking one step out of your comfort zone for God. Maybe that's the small step you need to make. Just, just consider what is one uncomfortable thing I can do to begin to stretch and grow myself. Maybe for you, uh, that looks like something like this. Maybe you need to take a step in pursuing further equipping and further training. Um, you know, we have uh, one great way to do this, by the way, would be our equipping division. Now, you probably hear us talk about that a lot. I would tell you this fall, uh, it has never been easier to be connected to the equipping division since much of it is online. But I'll encourage you, maybe sign up for that. Stretch yourself a little bit. Uh, maybe for you, maybe that. Maybe this next step is you need to take a step towards serving. Right? Maybe you need to consider that. Can I serve somewhere in my community? Maybe serve somewhere in my life group. Maybe serve somewhere at our church. Maybe for you, maybe the small step you need to take is maybe you actually need to leave. Maybe you need to go on one of our Go Team trips to some of our global partnerships and actually uh, get out of the country for a while and, and, and minister in those ways. I know that during COVID, it's more challenging to do those things, but maybe that's something that's worth pursuing. But I would say, maybe, maybe think about that. Uh, how about this one? Prioritize connecting with God's people. Yeah, that's an important step. You know, as I mentioned, one of the reasons that it's so important that we gather together is because we continually need to rouse each other back awake. Now, it takes a whole community of followers of Jesus to keep pushing each other and waking each other up to strengthen those things. So Jesus says, strengthen what remains, right? Add to, slowly add to your growth. And then I also want you to notice he says this. He says, and remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold it fast and repent. So here's what Jesus says. He says, I want you to remember, remember what you've received and heard. He says, I want you to hold on to that. And he says, and I want you to repent and repent. Now, of course, this whole series, repentance has been such an important word pretty much to every church that we've seen. Jesus has looked at the church and he said, 
but you need to repent. And we've talked about this. We've said, you know, repentance sounds like a super churchy word, but it's not. The word repent simply means to turn back. It means you were going one way, and it means you need to turn around and you need to go the other way. So Jesus says, remember, remember what you received and what you've heard and hold on to that and then go back, turn back. And so Jesus says, I want you to repent. I want you to repent. I want you to turn back to, to me. In fact, can I show you something I think is so cool? I mentioned back in verse one, what Jesus says about himself. I think this is so significant. Here's what Jesus says. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God in the seven stars. Now, again, that might seem super weird to us. Like my guess is some of you are reading that and you're thinking, now, wait a minute, what is the seven spirits of God? I thought there was one Holy Spirit. So what's this idea of this seven? Are you telling me that there are seven Holy Spirits? So, so let, me, let me help you out here. Um, no, that's not what that's saying. Uh, you have to remember Revelation is very symbolic, the book of Revelation. And the number of seven throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the whole Bible is a number that represents completeness. It represents sufficiency. And basically, this is, this is Jesus' way of saying that he is the one who holds the fullness of the Spirit, that in him is found the fullness of the Spirit and the fullness of the power of God. That's what he's saying. Now, here's why that's so important, because here's a church that is in need of reviving. Here is a church that is dead and needs life. And the language of Jesus' introduction makes it very clear that this revival and this revitalization can only come from him because it's only in him that the fullness of the power of God's spirit and the fullness of God's power is actually found in those things. And I think, I think if we find ourselves in a place that we're dead, we find ourselves in a place that we're spiritually asleep, the life that we're seeking and the, the vitality in, in, the, um, in the wakefulness that we're pursuing is only found through the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer, he actually said it really well. He said this. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. He said, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. And I read that. I thought, wow, that is really powerful. And, and you know, I think what this reveals is that to be brought back to life and to be made awake, we need the Spirit of God and the fullness of the Spirit is only found in the person of, of Jesus Christ. So, so let me just say this, okay? For, for some of you, maybe you're hearing this and you, f you are a follower of Jesus and you feel weary and you're feeling spiritually drowsy. Maybe you're running out of gas. And can I just remind you what Jesus said in John 15? He is the vine and we are the branches. And that means that in him is the vitality and the sustenance of life. And it's only found when we, when we stay in him, when we abide in him, when we turn to him, that we find that life. Now, of course, listen, there's so much we could say about all of this passage. Uh, but, uh, but just to summarize, Jesus closes his letter with a promise. And he closes with a blessing. And he says, listen, for those who wake up and those who stay awake, he says, there is, there is blessing and there's promise attached to that for you. And Jesus actually says a lot of incredibly symbolic things that I wish we had more time to dig into because they're just so rich and they're so powerful. But I want you to notice how he ends. This is how he closes out. He says this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He closes the same way he does all of the other letters to the church. And so here's the message to Sardis. Jesus says, you're asleep, you're dead. But this is what he says. It's not too late. 
there is still time and there is still hope. And if you would have ears to hear, and if you would be willing to listen, and if you would be willing to act, then that means that there is life and promise that is ahead for you. You know, I think um, in some ways, I think maybe the church in our country today is actually not too unlike Sardis, right? I think in some ways we can see that there's some parallels between what this church was experiencing and maybe what we're experiencing in our culture. Uh, church leaders talk about uh, this, this, uh, this statistic. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called the rise of the nuns. Maybe you've heard of that before. It's the people who say they have no religious affiliation. And what's fascinating is they say that from 1978 to 2008, there has been a dramatic shift. And it's been that uh, that of mainline Protestantism has been dramatically declining. And that of those who claim to have no religious affiliation has been radically increasing. And what's really fascinating is those who would be considered mainline Protestant are all in the older generation, and those who would consider themselves of no religious affiliation would be all part of the younger generation. And so there's a seismic shift that's taking place right now. There, there's a change that's happening that we see within the church. And, uh, you know, I think some people might look at this and they would say, we live in a time and place where we have a reputation of being spiritually alive, and yet it seems like things are changing quite a bit. And, uh, and the church today maybe looks a little bit more, in some cases, like Blockbuster and like Rolling Acres and like Jagga Lake. And some of us might look at that and say, how depressing. We could look at it this way. Or, or we could say, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. Reminds me of the story, you guys have probably heard of the shoe salesman in India. One shoe salesman goes to India, sees that no one has any shoes on, calls up the company and says, send me a plane right away and get me back home. There's no opportunity here. No one wears shoes. The second salesman gets, goes, goes over to India. He sees that no one has shoes on. He gets on the phone. He says, send me every pair of shoes that you have. The opportunity is huge. Listen, can I just tell you when I see this, I think what, what I see is I see an opportunity. There is an incredible opportunity in front of those of us who follow Jesus and in front of the church to be a light for the hope and the love of Jesus, to see many, many people turn to him. Listen, there's a reason, there's a reason that whenever God does something powerful and new, they call it an awakening. And I'm just wondering, man, maybe God's got something like that in store for us. I'm praying God would make us a church like that, that we would be people who follow Jesus and who listen and respond to what he says to his church. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I do just want to say thank you for these, uh, these powerful and incredible letters that you've given to us so we can know your desire, we can know your heart. Lord, it's, uh, it is natural for us. It is a proclivity and a tendency for us to slip into spiritual slumber. And so, God, would you use this letter to Sardis that you've preserved for us to help wake us up, God, help wake us up. Help wake us up to the reality of who you are, the reality of eternity, the reality that we have around us. And God, help us to walk in that, Lord. I pray that you'd make us a church that has ears to hear. I pray for those of us who follow you that we'd listen and respond to what you have to say. We just want to ask these things, we want to pray it together. In Jesus' name, amen.